You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for the March 9th, Thursday reading of the Denver Post. My name is Diane Adler. Today, we will be reading the following main articles. Denver Public Schools, District to Vote on Three Closures, Board Will Consider Staff Proposal Today, by Jessica Seaman. Healthcare in Colorado, Should State Try Universal Option? Measure Introduced in the House Would Look at How System Would Work, by Seth Kleiman. War in Ukraine, Russian Forces Unleash Massive Missile Barrage, by Hannah Irhorova and Elena Bekatoros. Louisville, Kentucky. After Brianna Taylor's death, feds find police discrimination by Dylan Loven and following up with miscellaneous articles. Denver Public Schools. District to vote on three closures. Board will consider staff proposal today by Jessica Seaman, the Denver Post. Denver School Board is scheduled to vote today on a new proposal to close three schools with severely low enrollment, nearly four months after the elected leaders rejected the district's first plan to address falling student numbers. Denver Public Schools Superintendent Alex Marrero is recommending Denver Discovery, Mathematics and Science Leadership Academy, and Fairview Elementary close at the end of the academic year with students moving to other district schools. According to a presentation, he is scheduled to give the board at a special meeting today. The meeting's agenda does not include time for public comment on the closure plan, which is scheduled to be voted on one day after it became public. We had indicators that the superintendent really was trying to elevate the urgency of some of these decisions to some of the board, so I don't think we were surprised by the approaching vote said Rosemary Rodriguez, a leader of Educate Denver, a coalition of more than 30 education and political leaders who advocate for a high-quality education for DPS students. In potentially closing schools, Marrero is seeking to address persistent enrollment declines and a possible $9 million budget deficit at the state's largest district, He has identified 12 additional schools that also have low enrollment, but he isn't expected to make a final recommendation on their fate until September. It's the second time since the fall the schools have faced the possibility of closing. They were among the 10 schools Marrero recommended shutting down in late October, but that plan was rejected by the school board in November, despite revisions to reduce the list to only two schools, Denver Discovery and Mathematics and Science Leadership Academy. Last month, board members who previously voted against school closures hinted that they were ready to act on the three schools in Marrero's new recommendation. Under the superintendent's new plan, students at Mathematics and Science Leadership Academy would move to Valverde Elementary School, and those attending Fairview would have guaranteed spots at Cheltenham Elementary School. Students at those two schools would attend their new schools at the start of the 2023-24 academic year. Employees at those two schools also would have guaranteed positions at the new schools, according to the proposal. Families with children attending Denver Discovery will get to choose what school their students attend in the fall. 
The district heard from staff and families who said they did not want to merge into another school, but instead wanted agency in selecting their forever school, according to the presentation. All three schools have fewer than 120 students. Denver Discovery, a middle school, was expected to enroll only 62 students next year. Overall enrollment in DPS has fallen for three consecutive years because of declining births, rising housing prices, and gentrification. However, elementary enrollment has fallen since 2014. The district is facing a potential $9 million shortfall because schools receive less funding when there are fewer students. District officials have said they are subsidizing schools with low enrollment to keep them operational. DPS is providing the three schools Marrero has proposed closing with supplemental funding that ranges from $680,139 to $1.05 million, depending on the school. Our impacted school communities. Representatives of at least one community organization said they were surprised the vote on school closures was happening so soon. But others including members of the teachers' union, said they understood there was an urgency to make a decision as families are deciding where to send their children to school and educators are searching for jobs. We do know these schools were being discussed late last year, said Milo Marquez, leader of the Latino Education Coalition. We know that, but we just thought there would be more time to engage the community. But, he said, The vote is financially responsible given the budget deficit and would improve the resources available to students who attend the three schools. Schools with low enrollment have larger class sizes and fewer electives, such as art and after-school activities. Schools that were on the original closure list in the fall are struggling to retain employees and students because of the uncertainty around the school's future, said Rob Gould, president of the Denver Classroom Teachers Association. We're glad the board is making a move on this, he said. By voting Thursday, the school board is not trying to avoid public comment, but rather to honor the voices of those who have spoken to us, board spokesman Bill Good said in an email. The district has been engaging with our impacted school communities over the past four months regarding the potential closures, including at several public meetings over the past week at the three schools up for closure, he said. During these intimate conversations with the communities of the three impacted schools, we heard very clearly that they want this to happen as soon as possible so they can begin to make concrete plans for next year. Dispute over Fairview Elementary. The rollout of the previous school closure proposal in the fall faced criticism from families, employees, and the school board for its quick timeline and lack of community engagement. In November, the district received pushback on its plans to merge Fairview with Cheltenham from families and the Denver Housing Authority. A November 1st memo by the Housing Authority showed it is expecting redevelopment in the Sun Valley neighborhood to bring enough children to keep Fairview open. It also found significant safety issues on the highways children would have to cross to get to Cheltenham. The Denver Housing Authority said in a statement Wednesday that it continues to be concerned about DPS's recommendation to close Fairview. 
new and returning Sun Valley residents have begun moving back into the neighborhood this month, the Housing Authority said in a statement. Sun Valley families, their future stability, and the important educational role of Fairview Elementary have been at the center of DHA's redevelopment approach for the past decade. Half of the Denver Housing Authority's residents are under 18, and 40% are elementary age, according to the statement. As a result, DHA strongly supports keeping Fairview Elementary open to continue to provide critical support and services to the historically underserved Sun Valley community, the Housing Authority said. Marrero's presentation says that in recent weeks, the district has held meetings with workers and families about the future of the three schools that might close, and that their feedback is being used by the superintendent to make the new recommendation. Now, as part of the closure plan, Marrero will recommend DPS expand the boundary for Cheltenham to include Fairview's. If approved, this would guarantee transportation for students in Fairview's boundary to Cheltenham because they would be considered outside of the latter's walk zone, according to the presentation. Healthcare in Colorado. Should state try universal option? Measures introduced in the House would look at how system would work. By Seth Klaman, the Denver Post. Supporters of universal health care got a shot in the arm last month when Democrats introduced a bill that would direct public health officials to study how such a system would work in Colorado. Two House Democrats introduced HB 23-1209 in mid-February in the latest step in policymakers' ongoing journey to expand health care access in Colorado. The bill would direct the state School of Public Health to analyze model legislation to implement a publicly funded but privately delivered health system here, meaning state-funded care provided by existing hospitals and providers. This study would examine the costs of a system under which copays and deductibles are prohibited while access and benefits are prioritized. Fort Collins Democrat Representative Andy Bosenecker, who with Representative Karen McCormick is sponsoring the measure, said he's supportive of a single-payer system. He and other Democratic lawmakers said they wanted to see the results of a study here to inform policymaking into the future. The study bill, which would also establish a task force to assist in the analysis, would allocate more than $277,000 in state money to the University of Colorado to fund the effort. It wouldn't require any legislation be considered or even introduced by future lawmakers, but it would provide more data, legislators said, several years after voters rejected launching a taxpayer-funded universal system here. If it comes back with high benefit, it's something we can take action on, said Democratic Representative Daphna michelson Janet, who leads the House's Public and Behavioral Health and Human Services Committee. If it's a really bad idea, we can go back to the drawing board. Supporters like the Colorado Foundation for Universal Healthcare say the study can show how or if a single-payer system can provide access to care while cutting costs. But opponents, like the insurer trade group America's Health Insurance Plans, say the study is a waste of time, particularly three years after a similar study was undertaken, also by the public health school. That 2021 fiscal report found that a universal system 
could yield significant health care savings, particularly if pricing regulations are put in place to control cost growth in the future. Bosenecker said the study he wants would build upon that finding and provide more insight into how a system could work here. But he also noted that in 2016, Colorado voters resoundingly rejected a ballot measure that would have instituted a universal health system. That program, Colorado Care, was projected to cost about $36 billion a year, and it largely would have been funded via a 10% payroll tax. Bosenecker wouldn't say if he viewed the bill as a launchpad for future legislation on single-payer policies. I think what the bill is talking about would be a monumental shift in how we deliver health care in our state, he said. So obviously, being thoughtful and not rushing is important. The bill comes as the state continues to roll out the Colorado option and as legislators here consider a slew of other health proposals. Governor Jared Polis repeatedly has hammered upon his desire to save Coloradans money on health care, and he supported universal health care during his 2018 campaign. Asked about the study bill during a news conference for other health bills last week, Polis didn't say directly whether he supported the bill, but said he is generally supportive of looking at new and different ideas. Colorado is far from the only state to consider whether to launch its own single-payer system. A 2020 study published in the University of Pennsylvania Law Review found that legislators in 21 states have filed 66 single-payer bills between 2010, when the Affordable Care Act passed, and 2019. A bill to enact a universal system in California died in late January 2022, amid pressure from business groups and concerns about how to fund the program, according to NPR. Vermont abandoned its trailblazing attempt in 2014 for similar reasons. War in Ukraine. Russian forces unleash massive missile barrage by Hannah Irhorova and Elena Bekotoros, the Associated Press, Kiev, Ukraine. Russia unleashed a massive missile barrage on cities across Ukraine early today, targeting energy infrastructure facilities and hitting residential buildings, Ukrainian officials and media said. Air raid sirens wailed all over Ukraine, including the capital, Kyiv, for at least five hours in the early morning. It was the first such missile attack in three weeks. Ukrainian media said air defense systems were activated in multiple regions. Kharkiv Governor Ola Sinenhubov said there have been 15 strikes on the city of Kharkiv and the outlying northeastern region, and residential buildings were hit. He promised to reveal more details about the scale of the damage or any casualties in Ukraine's second largest city. Objects of critical infrastructure is again in the crosshairs of the occupants, he said in a Telegram post. The governor of the southern Odessa region, Maxim Marchenko, also reported strikes on Odessa, saying that energy facilities and residential buildings were hit. The second wave is expected right now, so I asked the residents of the region to stay in shelters, Marchenko wrote on Telegram, saying the region was hit with a massive missile attack. Air raid sirens sounded during the night across Kyiv, and residents in the capital were jolted out of bed by at least one loud explosion. It was not known immediately what, if anything, was hit. 
More explosions were reported in the northern city of Chernihiv and in the western Lviv region, as well as in the cities of Dnipro, Lutsk, and Rivni. Russia has been hitting Ukraine with these massive missile attacks since October. Initially, the barrages targeting the country's energy infrastructure took place weekly, plunging the entire cities into darkness. But they became more spread out in time, with commentators speculating that Moscow may be saving ammunition. The last massive barrage took place February 16th. Before the barrage began, the owner of Russia's Wagner Group military contractor claimed Wednesday that his troops have extended their gains in the Ukrainian stronghold of Bakhmut, but it remained unclear how long the grinding fight might go on. Meanwhile, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres visited Kyiv for talks with President Volodymyr Zelensky on extending an agreement that allows Ukraine to ship grain from its Black Sea ports and permits Russia to export food and fertilizers. The battle for the city the Ukrainians have dubbed Fortress Bakhmut has become emblematic of the way each side has tried to wear down the other. Russian forces must go through Bakhmut to push deeper into parts of the Donetsk region they do not yet control, although Western officials say the capture of the city is unlikely to change the course of the war. The battle for Bakhmut has lasted six months and reduced the city, with a pre-war population of more than 70,000, to a smoldering wasteland. It's not clear which side has paid a higher price. Wagner owner Yevgeny Prigozhin, whose troops have spearheaded the fight in Bakhmut, said they have taken full control of all districts east of the Bakhmutka River that crosses the city. The city center lies west of the river. Neither Russian nor Ukrainian officials commented on Prigozhin's claim. The Institute for the Study of War, a Washington-based think tank that closely monitors the fighting, said Russian forces were likely in control in the cities cited by Prigozhin after a Ukrainian withdrawal. Russian troops have enveloped the city from three sides, leaving only a narrow corridor leading west. The only highway west has been targeted by Russian artillery fire, forcing Ukrainian defenders to rely increasingly on country roads, which are hard to use before the muddy ground dries. Zelensky vowed Monday not to retreat from Bakhmut after leading a meeting with his generals. Russian Defense Minister Sergei Soigu said Tuesday that seizing the city would allow Russia to press its offensive farther into the Donetsk region, one of the four Ukrainian regions that Moscow illegally annexed in September. In a blustery video statement recorded near a World War II monument in Bakhmut, Prigozhin echoed that rationale, saying the prospective Russian push would make the entire world shudder. NATO's Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg acknowledged that the Russians could seize the city soon. What we see is that Russia is throwing in more troops, more forces, and what Russia lacks in quality, they make up in quantity, he told reporters on the sidelines of an EU defense minister's meeting in Stockholm. They have suffered big losses, but at the same time, we cannot rule out that Bakhmut may eventually fall in the coming days. But like other Western officials, he played down the significance of Bakhmut's potential capture, arguing that this does not necessarily reflect any turning point of the war, and it just highlights that we should not underestimate Russia.
The Ukrainian military has strengthened defensive lines west of Bakhmut to block the Russian advance, including the nearby town of Chazif Yar, which sits on a hill. Farther west are the heavily fortified Ukrainian strongholds of Kramatorsk and Slovyansk. The ISW observed that Russia was also likely short of the mechanized forces it would need to push on from Bakhmut. On Wednesday, Russian forces shelled scores of towns and villages in the Donetsk region and other areas in Ukraine's east and south, Ukraine's presidential office said. In Kyiv, UN Chief Guterres was discussing the possibility of extending the agreement that has kept at least some of the country's exports flowing. Ukraine and Russia are leading global suppliers of wheat, sunflower oil, and other agricultural products, and Moscow's February 24, 2022 invasion of Ukraine drove food prices higher across the world. The current 120-day agreement expires March 18th, and Guterres said extending it for a second time is of critical importance. Also Wednesday, the top intelligence official in the U.S. said American intelligence does not believe Russia can make major territorial gains in Ukraine this year because of heavy casualties and the Kremlin's inability to replenish weapons and ammunition. Louisville, Kentucky. After Breonna Taylor's death, feds find police discrimination. By Dylan Lovan, the Associated Press, Louisville, Kentucky. The U.S. Justice Department found Louisville police have engaged in a pattern of violating constitutional rights and discrimination against the black community after an investigation prompted by the fatal police shooting of Breonna Taylor. Attorney General Merrick Garland made the announcement Wednesday. A Justice Department report found the Louisville-Jefferson County Metro Government and Louisville Metro Police Department engage in a pattern or practice of conduct that deprives people of their rights under the Constitution and federal law. The report said the Louisville Police Department discriminates against black people in its enforcement activities, uses excessive force, and conducts searches based on invalid warrants. It also said the department violates the rights of people engaged in protective speech, like the street protests in the city in summer 2020 after Taylor's death. Garland said some officers have assaulted people with disabilities and called black people disparaging names. This conduct is unacceptable. It is heartbreaking, Garland said. It erodes the community trust necessary for effective policing and is an affront to the vast majority of officers who put their lives on the line every day to serve Louisville with honor. The sweeping probe announced in April 2021 is known as a pattern or practice investigation, examining whether there is a pattern of unconstitutional or unlawful policing inside the department. The city will sign a negotiated agreement with the Justice Department, and a federal officer will monitor the progress. Taylor's mother, Tamika Palmer, said Wednesday that she remains upset that it took so long to feel some vindication. It's heartbreaking to know that everything you've been saying from day one has to be said again, Palmer said. One of Palmer's attorneys, Lanita Baker, said she was encouraged by the Justice Department's findings, but it's unfortunate that they took the murder of Breonna Taylor and protest after protest after protest through 2020 to come to this point. 
Mayor Craig Greenberg said Louisville has wounds that are not yet healed. We have come to terms with where we've been so we can get to where we want to be, Greenberg said. Taylor, a 26-year-old black woman, was roused from her bed by police who came through the door using a battering ram after midnight, March 13, 2020. Three officers fired shots after Taylor's boyfriend, fearing an intruder, shot an officer in the leg. Taylor was struck several times and died at the scene. The warrant used to enter her home is now part of a separate federal criminal investigation, and one former Louisville officer has pleaded guilty to helping falsify information on the warrant. No drugs were found in Taylor's home. Two more officers are charged in the warrant probe, and a third, Brett Hankison, is charged with endangering Taylor and her neighbors with his shots into her apartment. The report said black motorists were more likely to be searched during traffic stops, and officers used neck restraints, police dogs, and tasers against people who posed no imminent threat. Garland cited one incident where two officers threw drinks at pedestrians and recorded the encounters. Those incidents happened in 2018 and 2019. Both officers are facing federal charges. NAACP President and CEO Derek Johnson applauded the Justice Department findings, but said federal lawmakers have yet to enact wider police reforms. While Congress continues to fail our country with police reform, at least the Department of Justice is taking their job seriously. Today marks a meaningful step toward police accountability, and should Congress now decide to step up police reform, Johnson's statement said. He added that the group lauded Garland and the Department of Justice for continuing a pursuit of justice and added, Congress should take a page from their book, do their jobs, and pass the legislation necessary to save innocent lives. The Louisville Police Department has undergone five leadership changes since the Taylor shooting, and new Mayor Craig Greenberg is interviewing candidates for the next chief. The city has settled lawsuits related to the incident, including a $12 million payment to Taylor's family that ended a wrongful death lawsuit. Garland also mentioned some reforms the city has undergone since Taylor's death, including a city law banning the use of no-knock warrants in 2020. The warrants typically are used in surprise drug raids. The city also started a pilot program that aims to send behavioral health professionals to some 911 calls, expanded community violence prevention efforts, and sought to support health and wellness for officers, the report said. Also Wednesday, the Justice Department announced that it will review the Memphis Police Department policies on the use of force, de-escalation strategies, and specialized units in response to the fatal beating of Tyree Nichols during an arrest. The 29-year-old motorist died January 10th, three days after his violent arrest. In brief, Denver man, 82, charged with selling, trading, fake Michael Jordan cards. New York, an 82-year-old Colorado man was charged Wednesday with selling and trading fake Michael Jordan basketball cards in a scheme that prosecutors said resulted in him making more than $800,000 over four years. Male Gilbert McNeil was arrested in Denver, where he lives, after a complaint was unsealed in federal court in Brooklyn, charging him with conspiracy to commit wire fraud, according to the Brooklyn U.S. Attorney's Office. 
McNeil was accused of making numerous fraudulent deals beginning in 2015, including the 2019 sale of a counterfeit card to a victim in Manhasset, New York, for $4,500, and a 2017 deal in which he traded two counterfeit cards for two authentic Tom Brady football cards. Mr. McNeil defrauded sports memorabilia collectors of more than $800,000 by intentionally misrepresenting the authenticity of the trading cards he was peddling when, in fact, they were counterfeit. Michael Driscoll, assistant director in charge of the FBI's New York field office, said in a news release. In a brief phone call, McNeil said he was released without bail after an initial appearance in U.S. District Court in Colorado, I did nothing wrong, he said, declining to comment at length. Prosecutors said he will appear in a New York courtroom at a later date. This was from the Associated Press. Colorado man among 23 suspects arrested facing domestic terror charges. A Colorado man is among 23 suspects arrested in Georgia facing domestic terrorism charges after protesters attacked a police training center under construction outside Atlanta. Eric Nottingham, 22, of Colorado, is among a group of suspects that was arrested, according to the Atlanta Police Department. On Sunday, a group of violent agitators used the cover of a peaceful protest of the proposed Atlanta Public Safety Training Center to conduct a coordinated attack on construction equipment and police officers, Atlanta police said. Rocks, bricks, Molotov, cocktails, and fireworks were thrown and launched at officers, police said. Construction equipment was damaged or destroyed by fire and vandalism. In January, 26-year-old Manuel Esteban Paez Terran, or Tortuguita, was fatally shot by officers during a protest at the site known as Cop City, according to the Associated Press. Almost all of the 23 people arrested are from states across the U.S. One is from Canada and another from France. This brief was from Kiernan Nicholson, the Denver Post. Clean energy, new tax credits for green tech, package of proposals would move state toward net zero emissions by 2050. By Nick Coltrane, the Denver Post. Governor Jared Polis and Colorado lawmakers are pushing a baker's dozen of bills they say will help move the state toward a clean energy economy. The package of bills highlighted Wednesday, some of which have been introduced, includes tax incentives to promote decarbonization and electrification, geothermal energy, electric vehicle charging station requirements, and streamlining permitting approval for solar energy projects. There's a lot of cost-saving measures, as well as improvements in life quality for everyday Coloradans that are really built into the fabric of these bills, Polis said. They also include industrial policy updates, he added. Polis described the package as setting the vision for Colorado's energy future and giving the state tools to reach it. A proposal sponsored by State Senator Chris Hansen, SB 23-016, would set the state's emission standards to net zero by 2050. The state has additional goals of 100% renewable energy by 2040. Hansen's bill has been previously introduced. He said Wednesday he sees a clear path for it to become law. Perhaps the most consumer-focused proposal is a slew of -of point-of-sale tax credits for electric vehicles, electric bicycles, and electric lawn equipment and snowblowers. 
Currently, Coloradans are eligible for up to $9,500 in tax credits when they buy a new electric vehicle, when federal programs are included, according to the state. This proposal would up the state's incentive from $2,000 to $5,000, which, notably, will be applied at the point of sale. The proposal will additionally ramp up for people shopping for lower-priced electric vehicles. Representative Mike Weissman, an Aurora Democrat who will sponsor the yet-to-be-introduced bill, said they wanted to open up the program to people with lower and moderate incomes. We have a moral obligation to aggressively lead in this and to set an example of what states can do so that other states will follow, and eventually so that other nations will follow what we're doing, Weissman said. Will Tour, executive director of the Colorado Energy Office, said the state tax credits for electric vehicles and other programs would meet local needs while also building off federal programs to maximize federal tax credits that come to the state. The package also includes a bill aimed at promoting electric vehicle charging stations, particularly in multifamily home developments. Polis vetoed a bill last year with a similar aim over concerns that it would put certain technical requirements into law. He said this one provides more flexibility. Lawmakers also took aim at promoting decarbonization by incentivizing new technology. State Representative Ruby Dixon, a Democrat from Centennial, said she's seen no credible climate models for stopping rising global temperatures that don't include carbon management. We have an opportunity to really take the lead on this, and not only to achieve our climate goals, but also because it could be an amazing economic opportunity, Dixon, who is sponsoring some of the decarbonizing bills, said. Polis, as chair of the Western Governors Association, has promoted geothermal energy through the Heat Beneath Our Feet initiative. The package of bills would include tax incentives for using that source of energy in the state. The package comes as the Joint Budget Committee, which drafts the state's budget, readies its spending proposal. Outside of the tax credits, most of the proposal's policy changes would cost the state relatively little, Polis said, though many have not gone through a nonpartisan fiscal analysis yet. The tax credits are also temporary. The sponsors in Polis said the spending should fit within the state budget. We've structured these in a way that is affordable inside the state budget construct that doesn't have an immediate impact on the general fund, Hansen a former member of the JBC, said. Lower downtown, bystander sues police officer who shot her last summer. Angelica Ray, who was shot in the leg, sues officer Brandon Ramos over July 17th incident by Shelley Bradbury, the Denver Post. One of the five bystanders erroneously shot by a Denver police officer as bars let out in lower downtown last year filed a lawsuit against the officer this week. Angelica Ray was among the bystanders shot by Officer Brandon Ramos on July 17th near Larimer and 20th Streets. The officer, who was suspended after the shooting and is facing criminal charges, was aiming at a man with a gun, but missed and hit the bystanders on a crowded street. Five were shot, and one additional bystander was injured, police have said. Ray, who was 23 at the time and out celebrating a promotion at work, was shot in the leg. 
She bled profusely and was nearly trampled when the crowd around her panicked after the shooting, she alleges in the lawsuit, which was filed in Denver District Court on Tuesday. A tourniquet was used on Ray's leg, and she later learned the bullet had severed a nerve, leaving her with a permanent injury and loss of function, the lawsuit says. She is seeking an unspecified amount in economic, punitive, and non-economic damages, the lawsuit says. An attorney representing Ramos in the criminal case could not be reached immediately for comment Tuesday. The lawsuit names only Ramos as a defendant, not the Denver Police Department, where Ramos remains suspended without pay pending the outcome of his criminal case against him. Ramos was one of three officers who shot Jordan Wadi, 22, that night. The officers believed they saw Wadi flash a gun during an argument, so they followed him through streets crowded with pedestrians and confronted him. Wadi then pulled a handgun from his clothing and was holding it by the slide on the top of the gun when the officers fired. Body camera footage shows he appeared to be throwing the gun down. Two officers who shot Wadi had a clear backdrop, a grand jury investigation found, but Ramos was at a different angle and should have known he was shooting into a crowd. He is facing eight charges of assault, four counts of reckless endangerment, and a single charge of reckless use of a weapon. Teens sought permission to fire AR-15. Jury finds Denver man guilty. Nishan Johnson convicted of lesser charge of second-degree murder in Pamela Cabriales' death by Shelley Bradbury, the Denver Post. A Denver jury convicted a man of second-degree murder Wednesday for giving a 14-year-old boy permission to shoot at a woman with an AR-15-style rifle after a fender bender two years ago. Jurors concluded Nishan Johnson, 20, was responsible for the death of 32-year-old Pamela Cabriales even though investigators believed the 14-year-old actually fired the fatal shots. The jury agreed with prosecutors that Johnson, an established gang member, gave the teenager, an aspiring gang member, permission to open fire. Defense attorneys argued Johnson never gave permission and that 15-year-old was out of control and acted on his own. Johnson was convicted of three less serious charges than he originally faced after a seven-day jury trial in Denver District Court and about one day of deliberation by jurors. He was charged with first-degree murder after deliberation, first-degree murder with extreme indifference, and attempted first-degree murder, but was only convicted of two counts of second-degree murder and attempted manslaughter. He also was convicted as charge of attempted assault, being an accessory to a crime and vehicular eluding in connection with the February 20th, 2021 incident. Johnson did not appear to react to the guilty verdicts Wednesday, but a family member of his in the gallery had to be escorted from the courtroom after an outburst in which he threatened jurors, hit his head on the wall, cursed, and screamed in apparent agony. Members of Cabriales' family cried and gasped after the verdict was read. On the night of the killing, Johnson, who was then 18, and two 14-year-old boys were stopped at a red light on West Colfax Avenue at the intersection of Interstate 25 around 10.45 p.m. when Cabriales pulled up behind the trio and lightly bumped into their vehicle, testimony at trial revealed. After the fender bender, one of the 14-year-olds, who was armed with an AR-15-style rifle, looked at Johnson, who was driving, and asked, Can I bust on them? 
Johnson told police. One witness testified that Johnson answered the teenager's question by saying yes. Johnson told police he said only, it don't matter, and it's on you. He was washing his hands of this foolishness, defense attorney Nancy Holton told jurors during closing statements Tuesday. He did not aid, he did not abet. After that exchange, the 14-year-old stepped out of the car with the AR-15-style rifle and fired eight shots into Cabriales' SUV, striking the woman in the head, testimony revealed. She died several days later. The teenager got out of the car and proceeded to bust on Pamela Cabriales, Chief Deputy District Attorney Courtney Johnston said during closing statements Tuesday. The 14-year-old, who is now 16, was also charged with first-degree murder. That case is pending in juvenile court. The Denver Post is not identifying the teenager because he is a juvenile. Prosecutors alleged during the jury trial that the 14-year-old boy hoped the shooting would earn him membership in the Eastside Crips and that he boasted to police after the shooting that he was going to get his stripes. Why did she lose her life? Johnson said during closing statements. It's even sadder and more tragic than we could possibly imagine. It's so that a 14-year-old could get his stripes. And we know that because that is exactly what he told the officer. Holton maintained the shooting was not connected to gang status and that Johnson did not have any authority over the boy, who she described as violent for no reason and out of control. The 14-year-old was already steps ahead of any authority by Nissan Johnson, Holton said. The 14-year-old's daddy was an OG, an original gangster. He already had lots of clout. He didn't need anyone's permission. Longmont, Schreiner found guilty of first-degree murder by Mitchell Byers, the Daily Camera. The woman accused of shooting her ex-boyfriend and the father of her child was found guilty of first-degree murder Tuesday. Devin Schreiner, 27, was found guilty by a Boulder County jury of first-degree murder after deliberation in the death of Jason Schaefer, 33. The jury heard about five days' worth of testimony before receiving the case Monday afternoon and deliberating for about eight hours before returning a verdict just after 3 p.m. Tuesday. Because the charge carries a mandatory sentence of life in prison without the possibility of parole, Boulder District Judge Patrick Butler proceeded immediately to sentencing and ordered Schreiner to spend the rest of her life in the Colorado Department of Corrections. Deputy District Attorneys Carlos Rueda and Allison Brand read off several impact statements from members of Schaefer's family, including his mother, Lori. This has been a living nightmare, she wrote. I miss my son so much. Schreiner did not address the court. Schreiner's defense attorney, Jennifer Engelman, also declined to comment in this court, a possible indicator that Schreiner will appeal the verdict. Engelman had moved for a mistrial Monday, accusing Butler of bias toward the prosecution and costing Schreiner a fair trial in his evidentiary rulings. Schreiner and her then-boyfriend and co-defendant, Andrew Ritchie, were accused of plotting to kill Schaefer while he was delivering mail in southwest Longmont on October 13, 2021. District Attorney Michael Doherty stated, This defendant is a cold-blooded murderer. She took steps to get away with this brutal murder, but she underestimated two things. First, the victim was very much loved by his family and co-workers. The information and support they provided was critical. Also, the U.S. Postal Inspectors and Longmont Detectives brought their best efforts, and 
along with our prosecution team, ensured justice was done. As always, we appreciate the time and service of the jurors. According to an affidavit, Schaefer was shot three times next to his postal delivery van near a cluster of mailboxes on Heather Hill Street, just west of Renaissance Drive. Just two days before the shooting, Schaefer had filed a request to modify parenting time, and witnesses also said Schreiner appeared upset that Schaefer had already started dating Schreiner's 19-year-old sister. Schreiner's attorneys have not contested the fact that Schreiner was a shooter, but lobbied for second-degree murder or manslaughter, saying Schreiner was manipulated and forced into the shooting by the actions of Richie and Schaefer. Richie has his own trial set for April and is also facing a charge of first-degree murder. Arizona. No Labels gains 2024 ballot spot by Jonathan J. Cooper, the Associated Press, Phoenix. No Labels, which has pledged to create a pathway for an alternative candidate to run against the Republican and Democratic presidential nominees in 2024, will get a spot on the ballot in Arizona. The presidential battleground state joins Colorado in recognizing No Labels as a political party. The group's push for ballot access has angered Democrats and anti-Donald Trump Republicans who worry a no-labels candidate couldn't win, but would tip the scales in favor of Trump or a Trump-like Republican. No-labels says it is seeking ballot access in many states and will run a bipartisan unity ticket for president if the two parties select unreasonably divisive presidential nominees. Secretary of State Adrian Fontes, a Democrat, notified the group on Tuesday that it turned in enough valid signatures to qualify as a political party under Arizona law. He said in a statement he'd work with county election officials to implement the change. Even a small number of voters backing the no-labels candidate could be significant. President Joe Biden won three states by less than one percentage point in 2020. The center-left group Third Way said in a memo first reported by Politico that Biden won voters who didn't like either major party candidate by 15 points over Trump. Democrat Hillary Clinton lost those voters by 17 points in the 2016 race that Trump won. No labels said it would draw equally from both major parties. No Labels has emerged during a period of partisan polarization, with a rising block of independent voters dissatisfied with both major parties. While No Labels has focused its attention on the 2024 presidential election, it will have a guaranteed line on the ballot for every state and federal race in Arizona. That has prompted speculation that the group could provide a vehicle to support Arizona Independent Senator Kirsten Sinema, who left the Democratic Party last year and faces a tough re-election fight if she decides to run for a second term in a three-way race. A spokeswoman for Cinema declined to comment. New Mexico. Lawmakers seek assurances about new prescribed burns by Susan Montoya Bryan, the Associated Press, Albuquerque. Members of New Mexico's congressional delegation are looking for assurances from the U.S. Forest Service that the agency is taking preventative measures to ensure that future prescribed fires don't turn into disasters. They sent a letter this week to Forest Chief Randy Moore, pointing to the largest wildfire in state history that was sparked last year by the federal government. 
It charred more than 530 square miles of the Rocky Mountain foothills, destroying homes and livelihoods. A disaster of this proportion cannot happen again. U.S. Representatives Teresa Lager Fernandez and Gabe Vasquez wrote. The letter comes as the agency moves ahead with a $1 billion investment to reduce the risk of wildfire across 45 million acres in the western U.S. It's a massive undertaking that involves more than 20 landscapes that are considered at highest risk. They stretch from arid New Mexico and Arizona to Idaho and Montana. The New Mexico lawmakers said they understand the role that prescribed fires will play as land managers look to restore overgrown and unhealthy forests amid climate change. Still reeling from the damage caused by the Hermit's Peak Calf Canyon blaze, they told Moore that trust can be restored in the agency's methods through communication with communities about upcoming burns and by explaining how protocols have been modified to ensure prescribed fires remain contained. The U.S. Forest Service admitted fault, but we have a long way to go before they regain the trust of New Mexican, Leger Fernandez said in a statement. This letter requests that the Forest Service clearly explain what they plan to change to prevent another grave error like this. Our lands, forests, waters, and communities cannot afford anything less, and our people deserve it. Moore has yet to issue a formal response to the lawmakers, but he promised in an address earlier this year that collaboration with communities and Native American tribes is a priority for the Biden administration. Prompted by the New Mexico blaze, the agency last spring halted all prescribed burn operations for 90 days while it conducted a review of procedures and policies. By the end of the moratorium, Managers learned that they can't rely on past success and must continuously learn and adapt to changing conditions, Moore said. A report on the cause of the New Mexico fire pointed to a series of missteps by the agency, most notably that officials underestimated the amount of timber and vegetation that was available to fuel the flames and the exceptional dry conditions that had been plaguing the area for years. Federal agencies have completed reviews of more than 30 fires between 2017 and 2022, including three in New Mexico. In 2005, the federal government conducted what officials at the time called the first known attempt to take a comprehensive look at escaped prescribed fires and near misses, reviewing 30 cases to discover recurring lessons and whether there were emerging trends or gaps in knowledge. Common problems with the burn plans included complexity, risk assessments, and the lack of fire behavior calculations, similar to the issues encountered years later with New Mexico's historic fire. Just weeks ago, the Santa Fe National Forest delayed a project to burn debris piles in northern New Mexico due to snow and wind. Managers promise that the burn piles will be monitored closely and every precaution will be taken to ensure the piles are out before the arrival of spring winds and warming trends. Federal maps show there are pile burns and other prescribed burn operations planned or currently underway across the West. 1982 Murders Man Serving Two Life Sentences Dies by Ryan Spencer, Summit Daily The Dumont man, convicted of murder last year after investigators reopened a cold case from 1982, has died in prison, according to Crowley County Coroner Gary Gibson. 
Alan Lee Phillips, 72, died February 27th at the Arkansas Valley Correctional Facility in Ordway, Gibson said. Foul play is not suspected and the results of an autopsy are pending, he said. Phillips' case comes less than six months after a Park County jury on September 15th found him guilty of the murders of Annette Schnee, 21, and Barbara Oberholzer, 29, who had been hitchhiking near Breckenridge. A judge sentenced him to two consecutive life sentences on the first-degree murder and kidnapping charges, of which he was found guilty. Oberholzer had been found dead on January 7, 1982, near Hoosier Pass, with a bullet wound through her chest along with a zip tie around her left wrist. A tissue, bloody glove, and her backpack were located seven miles north of Fairplay. Then six months later, Schnee was found dead a few miles from where Oberholzer's body had been found. Schnee was found face down in Sacramento Creek in Park County with a gunshot wound through her back. Both were reportedly hitchhiking separately from Breckenridge before their disappearance, and evidence in both cases included a pair of orange socks, one found on Schnee's body and the other found near Oberholzer's body. On January 9, 2021, the case went from cold to active after United Data Connect, a Denver-based forensic genealogy service, identified two possible matches from the evidence, Phillips and his brother. Investigators monitored Phillips for nearly two months, searching for DNA gleaned from napkins, food scraps, and trash that he may have discarded, according to past Summit Daily News reporting. Police eventually recovered Phillips' DNA from a sonic bag in 2021 and matched it to DNA obtained from blood on Oberholtz's glove. Federal budget. Biden aims to cut deficits nearly $3 trillion over 10 years by Josh Boak, the Associated Press, Washington. President Joe Biden's upcoming budget proposal aims to cut deficits by nearly $3 trillion over the next decade, the White House said Wednesday. That deficit reduction goal is significantly higher than the $2 trillion that Biden had promised in his State of the Union address last month. It also is a sharp contrast with House Republicans who have called for a path to a balanced budget but have yet to offer a blueprint. The White House consistently has called into question Republicans' commitment to what it considers a sustainable federal budget. Administration officials have noted that the various tax plans and other policies previously backed by GOP lawmakers would add approximately $3 trillion to the national debt over 10 years. This is something we think is important, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre said about the plan Biden intends to discuss Thursday in Philadelphia. This is something that shows the American people that we take this seriously. As part of the budget, the president already has said he wants to increase the Medicare payroll tax on people making more than $400,000 a year and impose a tax on the holdings of billionaires and others with extreme degrees of wealth. The proposal would seek to close the carried interest loophole that allows wealthy hedge fund managers and others to pay their taxes at a lower rate and to prevent billionaires from being able to set aside large amounts of their holdings in tax-favored retirement accounts, according to an administration official. The plan also projects saving $24 billion over 10 years by removing a tax subsidy for cryptocurrency transactions. Thank you for joining us for the Denver Post. My name is Diane Adler. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org 
or by calling 303-786-7777.